0: My presence is always overlooked, ignored, forgotten. I'm cast aside as being nothing more than a lowly janitor, but I'm not just around to pick up trash. I'm a custodial worker, sure, but I'm also educated. I have to be, because I'm trained to deal with medical waste at a private research lab. I handle biohazardous materials of all kinds on a daily basis. The researchers forgot that I'm here and walk right by me without a word, but... Just because they don't see me doesn't mean I'm left in the dark. I know more than I let on. I have unrestricted access and can see all the fucked up shit they do here. I might not understand the science behind it all. And I might not be able to explain what all the tests are for or what all the machines do, but I see everything. I've seen four-winged butterflies. I've spotted weirdly misshapen pigeons. I've cleaned up blobs of molten animal skins. I've watched a monkey learn to control biomechanical arm and yesterday I saw the end of this entire research facility and its team of researchers when one of their experiments went awry. Skinny Rogue. That's what they called him. His official name was specimen E5-2187 but no one called him that. See, scientists get a bad rap. They're not nearly as cold and disconnected as you see on TV or in the movies. They tend to get more attached to their creations than you might think. Case in point, there was a piece of tape on the corner of Skinny's tank with his pet name and a smiley face next to it. As far as I could tell, Skinny Grogue was some sort of snake. He was about two feet long, thin, and flat like a tapeworm. He had a rounded face with two tiny glassy eyes that never moved. The rest of Skinny was entirely white, but for his little forked red tongue that sometimes slipped out of his little mouth and flapped around like a flag in the breeze. He was kept in a bland terrarium on sublevel six, just a layer above the gravel and wide open space, nothing more to keep him company. I'd see him slithering along the glass walls at nights as I cleaned up. He reminded me of that old game with the snake eating pixels, and trying not to bump into itself as it grew bigger. You know the one everyone had on those big fancy calculators in algebra class? I'm not sure if Skinny could see me, but sometimes it looked like he was following me around. Skinny Rogue was definitely one of the most unique specimens I'd seen. Phase 1. Last week, as I was sweeping the floor, I saw the research team standing around Skinny's tank. Catherine, John, and David. Yeah, I knew their names, but damned if a single one knew mine. The trio had set up a camera aimed at the tank. Catherine was holding a wriggling millipede with a pair of tweezers. David unscrewed a single flathead screw, keeping the lid at the top of Stinky's tank shut. John opened it. Catherine dropped the millipede inside, and the other two were quick to shut the lid and put the screw back in. It took Skinny Rogue all of two seconds to notice the intruder before the millipede even had time to get its bearings. Skinny was on it. One chomp was all it took for the millipede to disappear. There was no way they'd set up a camera just to record a feeding. There had to be more to it. The three started writing notes, letting out a few excited gasps. They were so distracted that I managed to get a little closer without drawing any attention to myself. You know how when a snake eats something big, you can see its shape bulging out of its form? Well, I could see the millipede inside of Skinny. Not just a rounded shape where it had settled in Skinny's stomach, but each and every little leg branching out under the pale white flesh. That's not what bothered me, though. What bothered me was how the legs were spreading out all along Skinny's length, spacing themselves evenly to accommodate the creature a good ten times longer than the millipede. Then when the legs finally settled in place, they moved. Skinny Rogue seized slithering and started skittering instead. The trio of scientists exchanged high fives, congratulations, whoops, and cheers. I let them be and went on with my work so I wouldn't look suspicious. When I made my rounds later that night, Skinny was still running around on his new limbs. Phase 2 In the days following Skinny's transformation, I noticed the little guy filling out a bit. It's like he'd been a balloon, and someone had finally inflated him. I wasn't around for any of the other feedings, but I assumed they kept their steady supply of millipedes, because the millipede storage tank, yeah, we actually had one of those, was emptying out and fast. Catherine and David came in just as I was emptying the trash bin. He's ready, said Catherine. Let's give him a scorpion tonight. David looked hesitant. You sure you don't want to wait a few days? Catherine shook her head. He plateaued as of seven this morning. It's time. All right, all right. You know what you're doing, replied David. Catherine smiled brightly and gave him a playful jab on the arm, how I wished she'd interact with me like that. Out of everyone at the facility, Catherine was the only one to acknowledge me, but even then it was hardly more than a courteous smile when we were alone in the lab. More of a pitying look, really, one that meant, sorry you had to pick up the monkey viscera again. In the evening, I made it a point to stay close to the lab, hoping to watch the show. I wanted to see what would happen with Skinny. Morbid fascination, really. Around 6 p.m., David disappeared into the insect storage room. John and Catherine entered the lab and set up the camera. This is when I, coincidentally, wandered to clean up the medical wastes. It wasn't long before David returned with a scorpion in a small plastic box. John unscrewed the lid to Skinny's tank and looked to David as waiting for approval. David nodded, and John opened the tank. The scorpion was none too happy with its tumble into the tank. As soon as it landed, its tail reared up and readied for attack. It stepped side to side, snapping its pincers aggressively. John screwed the lid quickly as Skinny made his approach. Skinny snapped his mouth towards the scorpion, but the bug was ready to fight. He clipped Skinny. A bead of sweat rolled down the side of David's face. He's not ready for this, he whispered, hands reaching for the lid. Catherine stopped him. Just wait. Skinny Rogue skittered around the scorpion, his little tongue flicking back and forth as though to mock his prey. John looked tense, and David was a nervous wreck. Out of the three, Catherine was the only one to remain calm as Skinny orbited around the insect. Once he formed a near-perfect circle, he violently snapped inwards and coiled around the scorpion from all sides. There was a crushing sound, followed by a gush. It happened so quickly that the scorpion hadn't even had time to react. Skinny scooped up the shattered remains in one gulp. The bulge in his stomach quickly flattened. But nothing happened needs to be alive. Get another one, smaller, this time, said Catherine. I quickly looked away as David rushed past me. I pretended I hadn't been watching, but even if they looked right at me, I don't think they would have seen me. I was invisible. I resumed my work while David fetched another scorpion. Once he came back and they had their backs turned, I stopped and watched for round two. Scorpion went in, the lid was closed, and screwed shut. Skinny Ruge unhinged his jaw and slurped the smaller scorpion down in one shot. Impressive. I could see the creature's outline in Skinny's body. Its tail seemed to dissect from the rest of it and extend its way down Skinny's tubular shape like sausage meat being stuffed into a goat's intestines. The scorpion's tail became Skinny's tail. His small, weak scales thickened and hardened like an exoskeleton, Still white, but stronger. Skinny pitter-pattered around the terrarium, knocking the sharp tip of the tail against the glass as though testing it for weakness. John, David, and Catherine were elated. Phase 3 I wasn't able to be there two days ago when they performed the next experiment on Skinny. I had an important meeting to attend outside of work, but I was able to see the results in the morning. He'd grown two short arms and a pair of strong hind legs, which allowed him to run around, dig, and even move bits of gravel into a nest. A rat, I thought, as I examined his now plump midsection. Skinny Rogue wasn't so skinny anymore. His milky eyes, now larger with slitted pupils, followed me as I circled around his terrarium. He scurried from one side to the next, scratching at the glass with his newly acquired paws. I figured he'd gotten too big to climb the glass pane anymore, but when I tapped on it curiously, he folded his mammal features and let the millipede legs connect with the glass. He easily climbed and circled around my fingers, though trying to crush it like he'd done with the larger scorpion. Thankfully, I was safe behind the glass. Skinny then tried to break it with the tip of his tail, but it wasn't strong enough to break the glass. Before long, I went to my cleaning rounds, anxious to finish and go home. Unfortunately... Just as I was about to leave, my supervisor told me a monkey had died and I needed to clean it up. I could tell by the look of his cage it was going to take a while to sterilize it. There were these odd, hair-like filaments sticking to every wall. I'd been warned to avoid contact and then incinerate them for safe measure... I was just about to slip into a hazmat suit when the main lights dimmed and were replaced by an alternating red and orange glow. The piercing shriek of alarms quickly followed suit. This was the first time I'd been at the facility during an emergency, and though I knew the evacuation protocol, the full sensory assault left me rattled and frozen. I had to get access to the tunnels. I knew that much. Those tunnels had been used explicitly by us lowly custodians, so we wouldn't, and I quote get in the way when carrying waste through the facility. The maze of corridors led to almost every part of the building. It were a sort of underground world of the lesser staff, not unlike a service elevator at the back of a fancy hotel. Something to keep us out of sight, even though we were already basically invisible anyways. I shook myself to my senses, swiped my keycard against the reader nearest to me, and slipped into the tunnels. I didn't know exactly what to expect as I ran through the Unpainted cement halls and up the steep stairs leading to the first floor, but I didn't expect to hear the screams. Yeah. I was shocked by how they managed to penetrate the thick concrete walls. I was cut off from what was happening on the other side, but I could tell it was disastrous and gruesome. A foot and a half of concrete, if I recall correctly. The screams managed to reverberate through a foot and a half of concrete. I can only imagine the horrors that can make men and women scream loud enough to manage that. By the time I made it to the first floor and out of the access tunnels, I was out of breath and covered in sweat. I could just barely see a glimmer of light through the frosted windows of the back exit. I pushed the bar handle, but the door was locked. In my panic to get out, I tried ramming into the doors, but they wouldn't budge. It took me a few moments to realize the emergency lights had gone from red and orange to just red. We were in full lockdown now. Nothing was getting in or out, not without a security access card. I cursed beneath my breath. Now, I was really starting to sweat. I retreated back to the access tunnels, pacing back and forth in a panic. What was I supposed to do? Wait it out and hope I'd be safe in the tunnels? No, I couldn't leave anything to chance. The screams were getting louder and closer. I needed to get out of the building, jump into my car, and get the hell out of Dodge. If I had any hope of getting out, I needed to get into the security office near the main entrance and steal one of the security access cards. I didn't even think about how I'd get to the security office. If I had the access card necessary to get in, I'd just as easily be able to leave through the back door. My flawed, panic-stricken logic could have gotten me killed. Fortunately, when I reached the security office, I found his door wide open and its occupant missing. I jumped inside, closed the door behind me so no one, or nothing, would sneak up on me while I had my back turned. Phase 4 I barely had time to rummage through the drawers before my eyes were involuntarily drawn to the security monsters. Skinny Rogue had gone, well, rogue. There were bodies everywhere, dozens of them across all floors, Skinny's work, no doubt. From the quick glimpses I managed to get at him, I could tell Skinny had changed again. He was larger, fuller, and his front legs had become distinctively arm-like in nature. It even looked as though he had the hands of a chimp. He skittered around on his millipede limbs, making his way from one security feed to the next in the blink of an eye. From time to time, he'd stop, sit up awkwardly on his hind legs, look around, and start running. It was a struggle to keep track of him, but I realized one thing. He was coming my way. I checked the door. It was locked. Good. Good. To my relief, it passed right by the security office without stopping. He turned the corner and headed for the main entrance. He hadn't come for me. He'd come to escape. A security guard suddenly bolted out of the access tunnel by the entrance and immediately fired a shot at Skenny. I heard the pop and saw the flash of light on the screen lagging a few seconds later. The bullet was lodged in the entrance's glass pane. The guard had missed. He wasn't going to get a second shot. Skinny snapped around him, got up on his hind legs, and dug his venomous stinger right into his stomach. On the screen, I watched as the man fell to the floor and began thrashing around like a fish. Bloody foam poured out of his mouth, and his eyes bulged from their sockets like a cartoon character. It was only after a few minutes of this that he finally became still. It was a gruesome way to go. Meanwhile, Skinny was repeatedly thrusting his stinger against the window. He was smart enough to focus his efforts where the bullet had landed. and With every impact, more cracks formed until the window finally shattered. Skinny climbed the door and disappeared on the other side. I waited for a minute and then mustered up just enough courage to open the security office's door and crawl around the corner to the guard laying dead in the hall. My intentions weren't to check for a pulse, no. I wanted his gun. I pried it from his fingers and retreated back into the security office. I was scared, so damn scared, but the gun made me feel just a bit safer. I hugged my legs and hid my face between my knees. Phase 5 As I sat there in terror, I could hear dogs barking wildly, We had several posted around the perimeter to keep people out, but it never occurred to me that they'd ever need to keep something in. I hoped they'd manage to stop Skinny, but I had no way of knowing what was going on out there. Anxiety and tension weaseled their way through every fiber of my muscles. The dogs had to win the fight. Who knew what would happen if Skinny managed to eat one? See, Skinny hadn't eaten any of the researchers and I had a hunch it was because they were too big for him. Dogs, on the other hand, were a good stepping stone. The barks turned into whines. The dogs were losing. It was only a matter of time before Skinny would eat one and change. I wondered how he'd change, and what he'd do once it happened. Would he climb the electric fence, tunnel underneath it? Would he wreak havoc in town? He did none of those things. Instead, he came back. I'm not sure why he did it. I'm not sure what he wanted. Maybe he couldn't find a way out, so he wanted to investigate the facility. Maybe he wanted to take a nap in his cage. Damned if I know. I just recall looking up and seeing him break through the doors with ease. He was bigger. Much bigger. And his mouth had elongated into a snout. A few tufts of fur peeked down from beneath his plated skin. He was grotesque. He approached the security guard, licked his cheek with that forked tongue of his, and then swallowed him whole. He needed a live victim for it to work. And who better to serve as his next meal than me? Skinny wandered around the corner and began scratching at my door. He could smell me. His new nose could smell me shivering behind the metal door. I held the gun tightly, debating on whether to use it on him. Or on myself. Phase 6 Skinny stopped. I opened my eyes and turned my attention to the security monitors. Catherine was standing at the end of the hall. Why the hell hadn't she stayed hidden wherever she'd been holed up? Why was she chasing danger? Skinny recoiled and slowly backed away, never breaking eye contact with her. His tail arched over his head as he pointed a stinger at her. Rogue, honey, she said, in a voice as soft as she could muster. As she passed the security office, I was compelled to open the door and pull her to safety. Maybe I could be a hero. Her hero. But I didn't. I didn't even unlock the door. I couldn't take the risk. Skinny was just too fast. I just watched. She forced a smile. Rogue, let's go back downstairs. I'll give you some nice treats. I could hear stress in her voice. This was the first time I'd ever seen her confidence waver. Skinny's brand new canine-like jaw came unhinged and widened as the two turned the corner. He was going to eat her, I was sure of it. I couldn't let it happen. I couldn't let him take Catherine. Anyone but Catherine. I held the door handle hesitantly, but finally, I lunged out of the security office, clutching the gun tightly between my fingers, but it was too late. I rounded the corner just in time to see Skinny dart towards Catherine. She yelled, Rogue! No! She screamed as it happened, but the scream was snuffed out so suddenly and abruptly that it seemed like someone had muted the TV. Skinny sat up on his hind legs and swallowed. Her shape slid down his long torso and settled near the bottom. I waited in shock. I was too late. I was too fucking late. Skinny's body didn't seem to change. Even though he'd eaten Catherine alive, nothing happened. The bulge in his stomach slowly disappeared as though Catherine was dissolving. Maybe Skinny couldn't evolve further. And then he turned toward me. His little blue serpentine eyes scanned me head to toe. His mouth spread wide open, his pointed fangs glistening like knives. Everything became blurry as tears welled in my eyes. This was it. This is how I was going to die. He was going to eat me. Skinny suddenly let out a shriek, not of anger but of fear. Why? Why? he bellowed in a voice that was neither distinctively male or female. He looked itself over, a clear terror in his beady little eyes. Why? I didn't answer. I don't think I could have made a sound even if I wanted to. My mouth had gone dry and my throat had tightened to the diameter of a straw. Skinny shrieked again, his longer legs buckling, his shorter millipede limbs pushed him slowly toward me as I stood there still as a statue. I thought he was coming for me, but I couldn't get myself to budge or look at anything but my own two feet. And then I felt his shadow on me. I closed my eyes tightly, terrified my final moments were going to be spent on the slip and slide to hell, but I was wrong. Skinny wasn't coming for me. Skinny's stinger nudged the gun towards him. He took it in his chimpanzee hand. I hadn't even realized i dropped it. No, 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 he moaned. I looked up slowly, only to see Skinny lowering his head closer to his hands. He brought the barrel of his gun to his temple and fired. I heard a splat and a thunk as he fell dead. It was over. I was safe. I don't know what exactly Skinny took from Catherine. Maybe it was her soul, maybe it was her brain, or maybe something else entirely. I'll probably never know for sure. Whatever it was, I think it's the only reason I'm alive now, so... I'm grateful to Catherine. When all was said and done, I did my job, I cleaned up. After all, that's what I was paid for, right? The lab was a mess, and I was just a lowly janitor. I mean, like I said earlier, I'm trained to handle biohazardous materials and dispose of medical waste. I'm educated, but you couldn't tell that by looking at my meager salary. I wasn't too pleased when I realized that some high school janitors made about as much as I do, when all they had to deal with is graffiti and gum. So when the representative of a lab we often competed against for grants approached me a few days ago and offered me $200,000 for a single little flathead screw. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. In a town of only 200 people, we had three churches. But that didn't help when the fire came. We stood shouting and praying as it jumped from house to house, but we received no answer from either heaven or earth. We had been forced to defund our fire department as people moved away from the town and we sank further into debt over the last decade. There had been some hope of gap funding to get us to the next fiscal year, but the November fire was burning that hope away right before our eyes. Lacking any other option, we turned to the collective entity. It was actually my idea. I was one of only four recent college graduates that had actually returned to Malinta after escaping, so no one else even considered it. The only thing our town was known for was having elected as mayor an accused witch instead of burning her at the stake. It was to her artifacts in the mayoral building that I ran. In one of the glass cases was a scroll from 1880, and I memorized the text as an intrigued child. I broke that glass with a rock, carefully took the scroll, and ran back to Turkey Foot Avenue, where most of the town folk had gathered. The debate over whether it would actually work was short. Melinda Elizabeth Bensing was a revered name by the old-timers, and anyone younger was willing to try it regardless. The namesake of our town had not been a witch in the sense that she'd trafficked with Satan or demons. Indeed, she'd claimed those evils didn't even exist. Instead, she'd been some strange sort of purveyor of very real human energies. And that was the primary power in the scroll. According to the text, if we overlaid our hands in a very specific telescoping pattern and all held the same thought in our hands... We could give our support and willpower over to a collective entity born of us. By haunting firelight fueled by the homes and possessions of our community, we swallowed down our trepidation at the strange ritual and stood in the middle of Turkey Foot Avenue in the manner described. It needed to work. It had to work. That night, I saw fear in the eyes of my neighbors, and for once, I understood what it meant to be part of a place. Like my friends, I'd dreamt of escape, but they had the money to actually do it. My life, therefore, was on the line just as much as any of these other people. I gave my willpower, and shockingly, I felt it drain forward through my arm. Our tightly patterned knot of people began to glow. Subtle light passed through our arms, flared in our fellows, and continued on stronger. As it reached the front, Old man McCree gasped. The sum total pushed out through his chest, and he fell. No one ran to him, for all eyes were on the white glare floating slowly away from us. I shouted, The fire! Think about the fire! As one, we sent our hopes to it, and... It began to ascend, it began to take shape, flowing white robes, a golden halo, a malevolent face. It floated up and over the burning houses. It spread massive ivory wings. And then rain began to fall. But not from the sky, from beneath those spread wings. Little by little, flaring pillars of orange dimmed to embers and then went dark. We stared in amazement at the being that we'd created. It had actually worked. I'd once seen the ghostly Indian warrior on Turkey Foot Creek Bridge and when I'd been ten, so I knew the supernatural was at least somewhat real, but it absolutely astounded many of the others. It's exactly as I imagined it, one of the older women said in awe. Another agreed. Me too. It's an angel, yet another one added. Meanwhile the other three college grads and I rushed down to check on old man McCree. He was fine, but his hair had stood up straight on end, and touching him gave us static shocks. He stared at us with wide eyes and insisted he was all right, and that we needed to leave him alone. The sky over our homes was dark again, and the heat of the fire had faded, so the chilled townsfolk began to disperse. The four similar-aged of us were left to go to Cooper Bar and Grill and have a drink in startled silence. The bartender arrived shortly after us and served us with very few words before heading into the back. Ryan, Lily, and Courtney sat with me at a table. I knew Ryan from our K-12 school, and he'd always been a loud-mouthed meathead type, but now he had nothing to say, and sat over his beer staring at the table. Lily was our town's token goth, and had never fit in with this staunch conservative atmosphere, yet she too had participated in the ritual. Her father's house had been next in line to the fire, and it had been saved. She broke the silence by saying, How the hell did that actually work? I don't know Courtney well. She'd been a late transfer to our town because of her family moving in, and then she'd gone off to college pretty quickly. It's this town, she told us quietly. Something like that would have never worked in a big city. You got 100% of the people here to band together, and that's impossible everywhere else. That was an interesting point. I responded, So people would never believe us even if we tried to tell them. She nodded sadly. Ryan slowly lifted his head. He hadn't heard us. Instead, he said, This is it. This is how we fix things. Lily looked over at him and asked us. We do it again, he elaborated. Have it plow fields, grow crops, save the town. She shot back. Forget farming. Let's make it construct a factory. We can sell electric cars. The two immediately began to argue. Courtney and I watched for a minute or two before looking at each other with unspoken concern. By the next morning, that concern had become a full-blown reality. All the townsfolk were out in Turkeyfoot Avenue again, but not to put out fires. This time, they were arguing what to do with this collective entity. Mr. Ellis, the owner of the bank, was at the head of the mob with his arms high, trying to get people to calm down. Come on, he shouted. We can either work together and get something, or fight amongst ourselves and get nothing. Different groups began yelling over each other, and there were three different church crowds, of course, who each wanted slightly different things. There were farmers, like Ryan and his dad, and there were those like Lily who wanted to build the town into something more modern. Next to me in the back, Courtney called forward. Do we actually want different things in the end? Don't we all just want to live peacefully and prosper? Why don't we do all those things? Ellis pointed to her and said, Good idea. Someone get a table. a uh, Paper and pencil. Someone suggested, Well, if it's going to be official, we should do it in pen. Good idea, Earl, Ellis motioned over to the men who'd grabbed a table from a nearby house, and they sent up in the center of the street, rights on the pavement. Someone got a pen? Widow Stevens offered a pen. Hey, someone else complied. That pen's got Trinity Lutheran on it. Yeah, and? Well, that's not fair. What about Melenta Memorial United Methodist? Ellis put a hand to his forehead briefly, then looked around. Does anyone have a pen without any logos or words on it? My three new friends and I watched as they hammered out a charter related to use of the collective entity. Everyone would get what they wanted in turn, but they spent several hours arguing about the order in which everyone would get what they wanted. As dusk neared, they'd finally done it. They'd crafted a plan that all 200 townsfolk could actually agree upon, and happily so. We had few and enough similar enough people that there was no outlying group left behind, and I imagine that was pretty wondrous. The other surprise around the time darkness truly fell was that the Entity did not need to be summoned again. It appeared in the skies above us dimmer than before, drained even, but it was still there. Here was the first true test. Ellis read from the Charter. The first miracle would be to heal old man McCree's sick dog. His wife had died the year before, and he'd fallen the previous night, so it only seemed fair. As one, the two hundred of us assembled there lent our support. Little sparks of white energy left each of us and went into the being into the sky, which grew back into the full brightness, and then disappeared in an umbrella-shaped flash of light over McCree's house. His dog leapt through the dog flap a few moments later and ran happily toward him with the energy of a puppy. It was truly a good thing to witness, and McCree cried and thanked us all profusely. That was it for the day, and we separated into our little groups again. We were all smiling as we sat at Cooper, drinking, but I had to admit I was feeling a little tired. At first I chalked it up to the day's lengthy debates, but I saw my friends yawning as well. Courtney said what we were all thinking. Man, giving that energy away really took it out of me. Huh, how about that? It was a massive red flag that none of us paid the proper heed. The next few nights we gathered to fix damage done by the fire. After, we still went to the bar for drinks, but that soon changed. After a week of minor miracles that everyone had agreed upon, I was too tired to stay out. I went home and immediately fell asleep in bed, only to awake as if I had a hangover anyway. As I groggily stepped out, Courtney was on my porch with coffee for each of us. We have a problem. I guzzled the hot coffee, winced at the morning sun, and nodded weakly. There were already others gathering on turkey foot by the time we walked there. They were tired too, and much worse for wear because they were older than us. Mr. Ellis was there with bags under his eyes and holding a discussion. He waved Courtney and me over as soon as he saw us. Now here they are. Hey, kids, you look better than we do, but it's safe to say you're feeling under the weather, too. We nodded. Definitely. Well, then it's no mystery what's happening. What we give to the angel does come at a price. It ain't free. Therefore, we're going to have to hammer out some sort of payment plan. A few tired folk laughed since Ellis was the town banker, but he hadn't been making a pun. Look, he said, you young ones can bear it easier than us, so it's going to come harder on you no matter how we slice it. Courtney, you work at the quick shop, don't you? She narrowed her eyes. Yeah, why? Well, how about you forget that, and you just spend your days eating and exercising and generally getting well? He looked at me. You too. What? What? quit our jobs? I asked a little incredulous you're still working? he replied positively, just for the whole town instead of yourselves (sighs) wow what a dick I went to say something nasty but Lily and Ryan arrived from opposite directions before I could and Ellis gave them the same suggestion at home my parents immediately undercut my anger by telling me they were proud of what I was doing Ellis had called them, and they understood and would support me with food and petty cash until the year or so of Planet Miracles was complete. Begrudgingly, I agreed. And for a time, it actually worked out. I spent each day running, lifting weights, eating carefully balanced diets. I got in shape, and I felt great. At least until dusk. When the wind would be taken out of me in a basketball-sized orb of white light, and I would be left-winded, shaky, and weak. The older folks still gave, of course, but their contributions were the size of tennis balls or cherries. In return, I got to see the whole beings emerge from the ground in moments, and I got pats on the back and cheers from my entire community. For a time, Ryan, Lily, Courtney, and I were hard-working heroes but as the tasks grew in scope, so did the energy required. By March, I was returning home to alternatively guzzle Gatorade and throw up for hours. I didn't want anybody to see me struggling, least of all my parents, but I was reaching my breaking point. I didn't want anyone to see me struggling, least of all my parents, but I was reaching my breaking point. Not only was I physically ill every night, I hadn't had time for a social life in months. And I was beginning to feel cooped up in a prison with no walls. When that dusk finally came that I had to hold up my hands and defeat and say I couldn't give, everyone else had gotten used to our new prosperity. Next to me... Courtney held her sides and nodded too, wordlessly agreeing that she also needed a break. Ryan's dad was there with a firm grip on his son's arm. They've pushed back our Miracle nights for emergencies too many times. Our fields need fertilized. They can't just be left to dry out. It's fine, Ellis said to everyone. We can all give a little more now and then, can't we? But they couldn't. They got their mundane miracle done for that night, but it eviscerated the older folks, sending them into their beds for the entire next day. They hadn't realized how onerous the burden had become. But strangely, they weren't more appreciative the next evening. I was feeling a tiny bit better, but they were sick and confused and angry. I tried to tell them, don't you see how hard we have to work out to support all this for you? That just seemed to make them angrier, as if they didn't want to face what they were doing to us. You're just whining, old man McCree shouted at us. Others jeered and agreed. Lily flicked them off. Widow Steven spit on Courtney. Lazy piece of crap. Courtney stilled my sudden move forward with her left hand and pointed with her right. Fine, screw you guys. We're not giving anything anymore. Ryan urged us. Come on guys, my family still needs a few more miracles. And how about the schedule changes on that? I asked him. Isn't it funny how they spaced out what your farm needs until the very end, almost like they've made it so you have to be on their side? He remained quiet, but fuming. Ellis' face seemed changed. then. I didn't want to have to do this. He motioned toward us, and our two local cops started moving. Seriously? I shouted to him, even as Courtney, Lily, and I backed up. The town needs these miracles, he proclaimed, or else it'll die. You're putting us all in danger with your selfishness. I looked around for recognition of the absurdity of what he'd said, but the townsfolk were all of one face, angry. My parents were among them, glowering at me with fire. I looked at Courtney and Lily. Our community had made one mistake in assigning us our duties. We were fitter than ever. So we ran. The cops tried to get after us, but they had no idea how fast we'd gotten. They tried to chase us a bit, but the time they gave up and returned to their car, we were long gone. We broke into a house, gathered clothes, bags, and food, and took to the open fields and forests in town. From there, we watched. Our first fear was that they would use the angel to find us or punish us somehow. We watched from deep in the trees that evening when they shouted for retribution. The angel darkened, not dimmed, but darkened, glowing gray rather than white. Fearful, our neighbors rapidly returned to the charter schedule, but the figure in the sky remained gray nevertheless. Seemingly overnights, Malinta changed. Where once we'd been a friendly scattering of houses, churches, a movie theater, and a bar, we were now a territory under siege. Bands of townsfolk gathered together, searched the woods each night for us. At first with just flashlights, but then with guns. The first time I thought we were caught, we instead learned what was happening. Old Man McCree apologized to us when he caught us in his house stealing food. Ellis and the men in charge had began assigning our old energy duties to others who weren't quite so spry. And when they'd gotten sick and tried to resist, they'd been locked into their homes, only to be let out at dusk. McCree had tried to say something, but they'd threatened him. When he'd still tried to speak up and cause trouble, they'd killed his dog. In his house, our movement to fight back began. We set up camp in his basement, no longer at risk of being found in the woods by the armed patrols, and we began sneaking around town at night, contacting those we could trust. By the first of June, we finally found Ryan. He was a gaunt and hollow stick figure, not at all the meathead I remembered, and he seemed bereft of willpower to fight back. Come on, Lily told him through the window that night. We're going to fix this. We need you to be our guy on the inside. He nodded weakly, and blood leaked from his nose. That night, we watched the gathering from McCree's upper windows. The angel's robes had turned black, and its face was neutral, sour rather than benevolent. Two men with rifles slung over their shoulders held Ryan on his feet, and his contribution was a ball of gray light about the size of a car. He passed out after giving and they carried him away, along with several other horrifyingly thin older men and women. And their miracle that night? A bigger bank building to handle the increased finances flowing into Melenta, Or so Ellis said. Another emergency. The next morning, three haggard men and one tired woman showed up in the proper spot in the woods. Ryan had told them. He'd done what we'd asked. From then, we learned where their patrols would move the next night, and we staged our first ambush to capture guns. The men were weak and hardly put up a fight. They were only dangerous because of their weapons. Ellis was taking more and more every day, leaving them sick and feeble. But he'd also purchased a shipment of more dangerous weapons and armed his closest men. By August, the evening ceremony became an army-defending fortress we couldn't even approach to watch. On the 5th of August, they took my parents. Previously, hurting loyal followers had been forbidden, but the community had turned on them as our interference had grown more persistent. Fully half of the captured town had grown bitter, angry, and supportive of our cause, and the other half had gotten desperate. I was convinced there was nothing we could do, but Courtney promised me in private we could fix this, even if she had to die doing so. It all came to a head on the 7th of August, on a summer night so hot I thought we might all cook alive before any shots could be fired. Ellis had my parents tied to poles on Turkey Foot, where we'd all first met and created something miraculous together. Now, he held an assault rifle pointed sidelong at them. I know you're here, you petulant little shits. Come out and fight like men. We waited. According to our contacts, he'd given the same speech the previous two nights. He had no way of knowing if we were actually in the buildings all around him. We waited. According to our contacts, he'd given the same speech the previous two nights. He had no way of knowing if we were actually in the buildings around them. He'd made them all too large and opulent to defend completely with his army. We crouched along palisades and minarets, watching. Come forth, angel he called, turning to our collective entity as it appeared for the evening. Courtney clutched my wrist like an iron vice. Across the street on another roof, I saw Lily grow as pale as the goth makeup she used to wear. Our entity's gorgeous feathered wings had now become leathered and it had horns in place of a halo. Its face was furious, pockmarked anger and waves of heat radiated from it, enough to heat up the night. The beast was now a demon, exactly as we had fashioned it to be, together, all of us. But none of them could see it. The change had been gradual for them. Only we, who had been away for a time, could see the difference so starkly. "'It's time to end this idiotic revolt once and for all,' Ellis screamed. "'Give now!' The men and women below, in chains and rope, gave what little the guards could beat out of them. Little sparks of gray and black floated upward. Ill will that witch had turned against them. Come on, Ryan, I whispered, watching him. He was just a skeleton with skin now, but I knew he had it in him. He was a good man at the end of the day. We watched as a new color emerged from his chest. Red. Blood red. Red. The ball of blood red was beyond description of size or quality. It was his life, his lifeblood, given to force the issue. He fell to the dirt. Dead. The demon absorbed that crimson light and began to flail. They're here, Ellis said loudly to the beast above. He screamed, burn them out. A slow, creeping red malignancy did begin to burn, starting at its fingers, but not the way Alice had hoped. Roaring against the pain, the demon turned its other massively muscled arm and lifted it into a fist. The houses closest to the ritual exploded in a massive pillar of flame. Jesus Christ, Courtney exclaimed beside me, and the man behind us murmured in fear. The heat was unbearable but we retreated down the building and into a dark alleyway. Could he do it again? Normally there had only been one miracle a night, but it turned out it was easier to destroy than it was to create. The demon lifted its fist again, and the building across from us exploded, showering cinders and fire across the street. I held Courtney back as she tearfully tried to run for Lily. They're dead! God damn it, we can't wait any longer. She was right. We were outnumbered by far, but we would all die if this continued. I gave the signal, and our army of geriatrics rushed the square from four different directions. The explosion that had killed Lily had also knocked many of the guards onto the ground, and those at our feet immediately threw down their weapons. The ones closer to Ellis and more loyal opened fire, but none of us were hit. We'd been prepared to run into the slaughterhouse and go out fighting, but our circle of old men and women slowed to a stop and lowered their guns as the enemy. Well, they fired above us. They were just firing to look like they were shooting. As we stopped and stood still, they began to lower their weapons too. Do it! Ellis screamed at them, kicking and hitting his own men. Kill them! Kill them all! They're endangering our livelihoods! We all just looked at each other as a literal demon hovered high above us, watching with fury. The creeping crimson dissolution that Ryan had gifted it had dissolved in one entire arm and was beginning to work on its torso. It's over, Courtney said calmly but loudly. Ellis, we made this thing to put out fires. She waved her hand to the flailing houses around us. Who cares how rich we are if the town's burned down? I don't give a shit, he screamed back at her. I'll just take my money and move. To hell with all of you. He grabbed my mother as a hostage and began backing away. Guns were raised again at that. Yeah, they were. With hate. My heart hammered in my chest as the entire community aimed their weapons at Alice. My pistol shook in my hands. Alice laughed at Courtney in particular, since she was closest. Where are the gun nuts around here, honey? Your liberal arts degree doesn't mean sh- Her single shot took him in the shoulder, and he fell back and loosed one round. She fell, and her second shot on the way down hit him in the gut. On the ground and bleeding, he spat. Anyone can practice aim, asshole. My mother ran to my father, and the guards untied them both. Together they ran to me, and I huddled with my family for the first time in as long as I could remember. Above us, the demon was half of what it once was. Leaving my parents to the safety of my allies, I ran to Courtney and kneeled near her as she began choking on her own blood. Ellis, too, was dying. It didn't have to go like this, I said, with tears running down my face. Why did it go like this? Ellis laughed, despite his pain. You know, kid, I don't even know anymore. I was content before all this. He pushed blood out of his mouth. I didn't want more until I had a taste of it. I was already holding Courtney's hand as she bled out on a strange feeling. I grabbed his too. I turned my head briefly to yell, Somebody get that parchment. We'll make a new collective entity. We'll save them. We have to save them. But both Courtney and Alice shook their heads. I understand why, now, months later... In some part I do, but I still don't. I never will. I sat there in the town square until dawn, holding their cold hands until the demon disintegrated into its last fading red wisps with the morning sun. My parents waited too, immensely apologetic but not daring to speak for all my tears and silent rage. Once the light came, folks who still had their houses began posting for sale signs. One by one, we each moved away. There was nothing left to say. Our trust had been broken. There's still a Malenta, Ohio, but it's not the same. The community that once existed is gone. The name is still there, the buildings are still there, and the land is still there. But my home is no more. But strangely, it had to happen. Better a painful memory than a living nightmare. Be careful what you build together, for the better angels of our nature don't always remain that way.